In a world where one woman locks herself inside a quiet studio and doesn't come out until the podcast is done, welcome to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed, a place you can get connected with Donna and her friends and listen in on some great conversation. And thankfully, unlike the intro you just heard, it's a drama-free zone. You're welcome. Now, as we listen to a bit of music from the amazing Mark Sparrow to lead us in, it's my pleasure to introduce the one, the only, Donna Reed. Oh my gosh, I just love that. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Mark. Welcome to Spotlight Conversations. How are you? So happy to have you be a part of the podcast again. Listening in, downloading, leaving comments. We all love it and we all appreciate it. Find out more about what I'm doing when I'm not in the studio, although I am in the studio a lot of the time. SpotlightConversations.com. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Donna Reed VO and on Instagram at Donna Reed VO or at Spotlight Conversations. Longtime journalist at the News and Observer, music critic. So tell me what you've been doing since you left the News and Observer. There's books, there's podcasts, there's radio shows. David Menconi, welcome. Uh, first, great to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, yay, Texas. I'm a proud San Antonio native. And you're wearing orange today. I just noticed I, that. I am. My Texas t-shirt. Although, God, they're really terrible this year, but um, it's always <laughs> next year. Go down there. Yeah, there's always next year. Um, I went to uh, the University of Texas for journalism graduate school, um, at which point I was writing about music on what I thought would be a hobby basis. Really? But I uh, was just pleasantly surprised to discover you could actually get jobs um, doing it at daily newspapers. Right. It's always been sort of part of a menu of stuff. I'm, I'm doing I was doing non-music features too for a long time which is actually good because I'm sort of back to that now um, but I spent three plus decades at newspapers 28 of them at the News and Observer here in Raleigh left just under three years ago um, it had just gotten you know the entire newspaper industry has kind of gone south and um, if you're at the New York Times or the Washington Post you're doing all right and everybody else is gasping for breath yeah um, the paper I'm at, uh, our newsroom went from 250 people to 40. And uh, you can just imagine uh, the pathetic little pamphlet looking thing that shows up in the driveway now. It's really sad compared to the glory days. Oh, I but imagine. I was glad to be there for the glory days. And um, I always had side hustles going on. As a writer, do you feel that that's important to have the side hustles? Yes. I do. Because... Um, a couple, you know, first it keeps you sharp and, um, you know, it'll probably diversify you mm-hmm. both in terms of who you're, you know, who your audience, the audience you're writing for and the subject matter you're covering. And also, you know, you just never know um, when you're going to suddenly need to rely on those more than you do. I never looked on them as a luxury, more like um, career development in a strange way. Mm-hmm. I also briefly taught um, and just discovered I was really no good at it. But yeah, I uh, started doing stuff for magazines on the side. I always had aspirations to do books and started doing those in recent years. And yeah, now I do some writing for various arts councils uh, in the area here, some magazines here and there, um, university alumni magazines. I do a lot of stuff for them. They're some of the few publications that have any money anymore. Mm. 
and um, <laughs> I do um, I do some stuff that's not exactly pro bono, but it doesn't pay a lot. But like the radio stuff doesn't pay very much. However, it's good exposure and it keeps my hand in on a lot of things and kind of keeps me plugged in on what's going on. Yeah. You're, you host the Old North State Radio Hour, a weekly show about North Carolina music. And where do you do that? And how long have you been doing it? It's funny, uh, that station, 95.7 FM, thatstation.net online. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually no longer have the weekly show. Uh, I do still do stuff for them. And they call them North Carolina Backtracks that show up several times a day, these little mini essays um, about the history of uh, music in the state. And um, yeah, I, I wish I still had the regular Wednesday night show just at a time when I could tell everybody to tune in. But um, but yeah, now it's just, I turn up when I turn up. And um, it's a nice little change of pace for, for them. They, they're kind of an Americana AAA format, but I, I'll play a lot of jazz and old blues that wouldn't necessarily show up on the air there. It's kind of nice to do whatever you want for music. It is. Um, there are pros and cons to that. <laughs> Do you have ever any problems with program directors going, I don't think so. I'm not hearing that. <laughs> it's funny. I try to be very cognizant of playing songs that are, shall we say, FCC compliant. And that really precludes a lot of things. I can mm-hmm. very rarely find a hip hop song that will pass muster in terms of lyrics for right. a commercial radio. The music that you hear in Texas, different than the music heard in North Carolina? And in what way? There are some certain points, certainly are points of commonality. Both have uh, thriving blues histories, although it's different. Um, the blues in, in Texas is more kind of roadhouse blues, whereas here in North Carolina, it's Piedmont blues, which is this kind of clattery, almost ragtimey style that prevailed in the 1930s. Um, both states, uh, a lot of music has come out of university communities, mm-hmm. um, the Austin alternative scene there, and then places like Chapel Hill mm-hmm. here in North Carolina, where we were briefly known as the next Seattle during the alternative That's rock right. era That's right. in the 90s. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell a story about somebody from Texas. When I told him I was doing this book, he kind of scoffed and said, well, that'll be a short book. <laughs> no way. Title of your book right now. So that everybody goes out to buy it and, and they'll go, no, this isn't true. Scoff at this guy. Scoff him. It's called Step It Up and Go, the story of North Carolina popular music <clears throat> from Blind Boy Fuller and Doc Watson to Nina Simone and Super Chunk. How long did it take you to do that book? Depending on how you reckon it, uh, 30 years or two, two to three. <laughs> so did you um, see Nina Simone and Super Chunk and all the rest and just how did that happen? Well, you know, I came here not really knowing anybody or much about North Carolina music. I was just really a newbie when I got here. I, I was, you know, I knew about Doc Neural mm-hmm. and um, of some of the college radio bands that would come through uh, in Austin. But... There were whole worlds that I just was not familiar with. And um, as a, you know, I didn't think much about it, but North Carolina music constantly surprised me. Like, oh, Nina Simone's from here. I had no idea. Link Ray, too. Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, And wow, James Brown at his most important period, half his band was from Eastern North Carolina. That's something. 
there was this decade or so of discovery where, you know, I, I was at a paper that valued storytelling in history and I had an editor who was very good and she'd mm -hmm. send me out doing this stuff. And it occurred to me, wow, this, this could be a book. And um, over time, it started to seem like a book where you tell a single story that all this fits into ah. rather than just like encyclopedia entries. So it's not an A to Z encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. You could do just as compelling a book about North Carolina music with a completely different cast of characters, which is the great thing about the music of this state. How broad and varied and deep and rich it is. And when you were at the NNO, did you take all of these stories and just put them to the side and go, I'm saving it? You know, one day I'm going to go ahead and make these into a book. Uh, well, no. I mean, honestly, there are chapters in this where the, uh, a feature I did in the paper was kind of the roadmap to do it. Ah, okay. um, you know, there, there's nothing in there that's like verbatim a story that appeared in the paper. But, yeah, there's like quotes in there that are taken out of stories I did for the paper. Piedmont Laureate. When did that happen and how did it happen? Uh, there is a wonderful program here in Eastern North Carolina called Piedmont Laureate. And um, they have different areas of each year is a different specialty. They'll have fiction writing. They'll have uh, the current one is children's book author. They'll have poetry and then uh, creative nonfiction is uh, the one the year I did it was. And, uh, you know, you apply write an essay about what you do and uh, submit a bunch of writing samples and, and they, uh, they pick. Uh, it's put on by various arts councils in the area. So I got to spend a year going around doing programs. It was uh, the year of music as decreed by the governor's office. So that was very well timed. Um, I did a lot of presentations about the music history of the area. And it dovetailed nicely with uh, work on the book, too. So. Now, was this after oh. working at the News and Observer? That started right as I was leaving the paper. Perfect um, timing. I, yeah, it really was. Um, it's funny, I look back on that, and I don't know how I would have done that, hold down the full-time job, be Piedmont Laureate, and do you know a couple or three programs a week, and finish a book. I would have gotten it done, but it probably would have killed me. So, uh, Things always seem to work out. Indeed. They indeed. do. Um, I'm looking at PiedmontLaureate.org. And back in 2019, you wrote, Secret to a Long Life is Knowing When It's Time to Go. It's a blog post. I recommend it to anybody thinking about, well, should I stay or should I go? Sorry. <laughs> as a music critic, you can maybe appreciate that as well. But I can. The Clash. Always, always good to quote. Um, that was me writing the post and announcing to the world that I was leaving the paper. And um, I, it's probably the one thing I have put out in the world where I could say the impact was seismic. You know, when I posted the link to social media, the outpouring was unbelievable and humbling. It chokes me up a little even three years later to think about. It's a great um, post. You know, it was people responded with such loveliness and kindness. And, uh, you know, it was it was like, getting to go to your own funeral, but not having to die. You know, all these wonderful testimonials from people who'd been reading me for years. Did it come easily when you wrote it? What was your method for writing this? It was so fresh in your mind. Generally, when I write anything, whether it's a short thing or a book, there's the obligatory terrible first draft mm. where um, you don't think too much about transitions. You just put it down on paper 
and uh, give yourself something to work with. There's that saying, uh, 90% of writing is rewriting, and it mm -hmm. is definitely true in my case. It, it, the bones of it came out pretty easily. You know, it was obviously something on my mind for years and years. As, as the newsroom population dwindled, it was like having a sword overhead. So I knew this day would come. I, I do remember thinking, I got to write something and, you know, tell people, but I kept putting off doing it. There were a few times uh, when I thought I was ready and I tried and just couldn't do it. But uh, once once I finally bared down on it, it, it came pretty quick. Do you find it easier to write when you're not so much under pressure, but when you feel there's a story to be told rather than, you know, taking you have all this data in front of you and just combining it into a book? What way do you find writing easiest for you? You know, it's funny. I started uh, last year a quarantine project that I called the Archive Deep Dive or the ADD. Not like I needed yet another project, but um, <laughs> I have quite a music archive from being at, on record company mailing lists for so long. Sure. And I've got about 6,000 CDs. And I thought, well, I am going to listen to every single one and write something if so moved and uh, publish them on Facebook. People have, some people have said uh, I should really turn them into a book. Yes. Um, maybe someday I will, but deeply, deeply personal stuff. I hadn't really planned on it turning into kind of a journal, but it really did. Um, and early on, I figured out, wow, there's kind of a thing here. When I came to a band called The Alarm and I suddenly realized, you know what? That was the first band I ever interviewed when I was at the college newspaper and just remembering that experience and writing about that. And um, it just sort of turned into this back pages exercise. So it comes pretty easy when I'm writing something like that that really resonates. If, if I'm having to work a little harder at it to try to figure out the connections and the worth, that's a little a little harder. Have you ever reached out to, like, say, The Alarm to follow up with them? Have you ever thought about that? That would be a fine idea. Uh, I have not. Um, I'm going to call this podcast actually... Fine Ideas because when Michael Elliott was in here, I, we were talking about his book, the John Hyatt book, and I said, you know, I don't know why you don't write about Roseanne Cash because she's a big part of this whole scene, too. And he did, this, he did the same thing you did. Oh, that's a good idea. I'm starting notes already. Yes. <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. When you, you know, the alarm, what a great group. Going back and talking to them now, have you thought about that? Any of the artists? I hadn't because at a certain point, the next book I'm working on intervened and I had to bring the ADD to a close, maybe prematurely. Mm -hmm. I did get all the way to ZZ Top, but I have oh. a section soundtracks and various artists. Oh. I have an entire separate section of North Carolina music and I have vinyl, two or 3,000 records there that do um, you? in box set. Oh, and uh, maybe someday I'll resurrect that. I think my wife would like it if I didn't. Um, she was very <laughs> kind and uh, tolerating it, but I think it wore on her. I tried to be uh, cognizant of not uh, subjecting her to six hours of Frank Zappa, say, stuff it that I knew that she wouldn't care for. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we have to broaden people's horizons, too. I'm, I'm talking to North Carolina journalist David Menconi, and we're talking books and journalism, music. Who do you like right now, musically? Uh, are you familiar with His Golden Messenger? Heard right of here in North mm -hmm. Carolina? I heard of him. Wonderful, wonderful group. Uh, one of my favorites from around here. Also, Sylvan Esso, 
they do electronic music, but you don't really have to be into that scene to appreciate them. They're almost like a campfire folk sing-along version of electronic music. Uh, they got a Grammy nomination a couple of years ago, so they're a moderately big deal in the world. But yes. I would highly recommend them. Yeah. What's your favorite genre of music? I mean, are you a heavy metal freak deep down inside the heart <laughs> of David Menconi? We're finding the truth now. I've been told that I'm um, much too restrained to be a true headbanger. Uh, uh, there okay. is some metal I like, but it's it's not my go-to. I'm probably most fond of a lot of the college radio stuff um, then and now. Um, still very fond of the oldies in that world, REM, uh, Nirvana, the Pixies. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, I probably spend most of my time nowadays still listening to college radio, our NC State station here in Raleigh. KNC. WKNC. Still rocking, Solid huh? state. Still rocking in the free world. <laughs> it's one of the better college radio stations. I don't think it's changed a lot. I haven't been up there in a while, but go ahead. Well, actually, it has. When I first got here, it was metal. And it uh-huh. was one of the only oh, yeah. college stations like that I'd ever heard. And it was, you know, interesting but strange. And over time, they've become a lot more of the genre of college radio, such as it is. And I, I do enjoy it more, but uh, they had a period of about five years in the early to mid-90s where it was mostly metal. Music today. Yeah, what's really changed the last decade or two is the industry has just gotten completely remade. Mm. Um, and there's really no place for bands to go the way there used to be. Um, you used, used to be you could be a, a bar band, a good bar band with a local following and still get a major label deal. And that is really difficult now. You have to uh, basically prove that you have developed an audience, a sizable one, and then the record company will kind of take over and uh, boost it all the way. Mm-hmm. There was always a certain ex- amount of that, but uh, record companies used to be more inclined to take a chance on unknown acts and try to develop them. And that doesn't really go on. Uh, The good part is it doesn't seem to be stopping anybody. Um, (laughs) DIY kind of releases and all that. It Um, is. Yeah. People are still out there doing it and still great. I see this on the local scene and uh, nationally, too. But a lot of the best records around here are just DIY ones that artists put out themselves on Bandcamp. Well, the culture today is if you have something creative to say or do, do it. You know, there is, but boy, there's just such an ocean of stuff out there. <laughs> like podcasts. Without, yeah. <laughs> and um, without the traditional gatekeepers, it's really hard for anything to kind of, you know, for you just can't conceive of anybody being Elvis or the Beatles at this point. And exactly. that's not necessarily a bad thing, but we just agree on less and less. And that's What's uh, coming up for uh, books in the future? Um, yeah, the North Carolina book came out just a bit more than a year ago, and I am currently working on one that is a history of the folk label Rounder Records. Fascinating institution. They've been around a little more than 50 years, and um, it was founded by these three college students up in Massachusetts who were, you know, folk music fans, and they do things like hop freight trains out to uh, San Francisco in the late 60s. You know, they did a lot of that, and um, they come down here to Galax and Union Grove and go to the Fiddler's Conventions and love the music. 
uh, and started putting out records. And nobody knew it was an institution that they had started, but it's turned out to be that way. Um, they have put out between three and 4,000 records over a 50-year stretch, which is more than one a week. And that's a world <sighs> where putting out one a month, that's yeah. amazing. They somehow put out this enormous body of work that's kind of cornerstone of modern-day Americana music and um, had some unexpected successes. George Thorogood, yeah. um, you know, he was this nothing bar band when they put his record out and right. radio stations in California started playing him late at night and suddenly it starts. blows up. Then back, that's how it was. Yeah. yeah, back then. Yeah. I was able to go up there once this past summer when we had that brief, lovely window when it looked yeah. like yeah. things might be easing up. Um, and at least I got to go around and see where it had all gone down and, um, visit with the three founders. I saw where they all live and uh, they pointed out some spots. It was um, great fun to rattle around his basement and look at things like his Rolodex and see Alison Krauss's phone number in there. Do you think people are reading more than they used to because of the pandemic, maybe being stuck at home more and finding, oh, you know, I have all these books. I have my Kindle. And how many books do you read too in a year? It, it seems like they are reading more yes um although not necessarily books but um you know more more and more reading is happening on screens mm -hmm. which also has its pros and cons you know kindle versions of books might wind up saving the industry due to supply chain issues it's a real problem getting enough paper and whatnot to print stuff i don't read nearly as much as i should right now because i'm you know, when, when you're writing books, it's really hard to just read something that's not connected to that. Yeah, yeah. So I've read a bunch of books about folk music and stuff. I've got a whole stack of them right here. <laughs> but, um, you know, just reading a book for pleasure, I haven't done that in a while. That's that's the downside of book writing is it takes away from your own reading. And I feel bad about that, but I'm uh, addressing the stack of non-music books I have stacked up. Ryan Adams, Losering, A Story of Whiskey Town. That was one of your first books. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and you're sighing um, because? Oh, just what happened with him. Yeah. Um, he was always, you know, a difficult character. And, um, you know, just what happened with his career and everything is very sad. I actually have not been able to listen to him at all, really, since all of that blew up. I'm, I'm not passing any judgments or anything. It just makes me sad. But a follow-up to that was coming right at you. How a Jewish Yankee hippie went country or the often outrageous history of a sleep at the wheel. <laughs> Title, you must have been, were you, are you a, like a headline editor at your high school newspaper, <laughs> college newspaper? <laughs> I cannot tell a lie. I did not come up with that title. That book was more Ray Benson's than mine. Uh, Ray Benson, the front man um, for Asleep at the Wheel, signed a deal to do a memoir. And um, he is an incredible raconteur, but writing uh, was kind of a challenge. So they okay. brought me in. He talked and I wrote, and then I just sort of put it in the right order. So yeah, that was basically by Ray Benson as told to uh, with a band like that. For someone like me, um, who's always asking questions no one wants to answer. <laughs> That was just like Valhalla. I could ask, ask anything and they'd basically tell me. So where can people find Step It Up and Go? 
you can fill in the rest of it since you love long titles. I'm going to call it the David Menconi <laughs> long title author and journalist. <laughs> Speaking, um, it is available from uncpress.org if you're ordering online, or it should be in any decent brick and mortar bookstore. Um, I would encourage people to buy locally. Here in Raleigh, you can get autographed copies from Quail Ridge Books. They're easy to find online, and they will ship anywhere in the country. And I can even personalize the signature if you want. Very nice. David Menconi, thank you very much. Awesome. You've been listening to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed. Subscribe on Apple and Spotify Podcasts or your favorite platform. Thanks for tuning in.